0: And welcome to Dear Hank and John. Or as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's a podcast where two brothers answer your questions, give you dubious advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. And John, this week, Catherine asked me if I could clear the table, and I, I, I looked at her and I said, I bet I could if I got a running start.
1: <laughs> I mean, the reason that's a funny joke is because you, <laughs> could, you definitely <laughs> couldn't. I've seen you jump. Because
0: you're just picturing my shins hitting the table right on, and the, <laughs> <laughs> the look on my face as I did it.
1: I mean, you couldn't clear the table in either way. Like, you couldn't <laughs> jump over it, no. nor could you jump its length. Yeah, no, I, definitely not. Definitely
0: not. I could get up onto it, I bet.
1: You could get up onto it belly first. (laughs)
0: Yeah, that's what I mean. Isn't that what clearing the table (laughs) means, where you jump and you slide on your belly over it and then you land on your hands on the other side?
1: Before we get to questions from you, our beloved listeners, we do need to acknowledge uh, something that is always true when we record this podcast, but is perhaps more relevant than yes. the average week, which is that mm-hmm. we record this a week before it comes out. So as we're recording this, it's Monday, November 2nd. You are living in Monday, November 9th or later, yep. a, uh, a world that is potentially quite different from the world in which we are living. And not only... Because AFC Wimbledon play their first game back at Plough Lane tomorrow. <laughs>
0: oh my god! I, really?
1: Yeah. Wow. It's a big day for you, John. I know. I am very excited to to watch it on my phone. I wish that I, I was going to be there in real life with my oh. my dad, also your dad, and uh, other friends and family, and and my and our kids and everything. And it was going to be amazing, but not. No.
0: Yeah. So uh, so usually we are unstuck in time when we like it that way, where where we can, you know, sort of separate ourselves from like the goings on of that particular moment. Uh, But in this situation, uh, your world is different than our world. Um, Hopefully, like right now, we are dealing with uncertainty. Hopefully you are not dealing with more uncertainty than we are dealing with right now. uh, And hopefully it's less, but we don't know. So we are going to record this podcast unstuck in time, except for that
1: little note. Right. Beginning with this question from McKenna, which is a real evergreen question. Thank you for sending in one McKenna that we could answer at any moment in human history. Mm -hmm. This is the question. Dear John and Hank, help! Five exclamation points. How do I get better at communicating my feelings? Two question marks. I'm a teenager! (laughs) Exclamation point. It's hard! Exclamation point. Advice on this subject, dubious or otherwise, very much appreciated Exclamation point. (laughs) McKenna, what I love about your question (laughs) is that it captures something... is
0: how how effectively it it communicates your feelings.
1: (laughs) Exactly. It captures something (laughs) fundamental about teenage life, which is that essentially everything ends with an exclamation point or a question mark. Yeah. (laughs) It is a time of life that, at least for me, was defined primarily by exclamation points and question marks.
0: Yeah, that's what they should call it. Um, or Oren um, understands that there are three stages of life, kid, teenager, and adult.
1: Yes, same thing as my kids were like that, yeah. yeah.
0: He will often say, I'm not a teenager yet. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, right. no, you got a ways <laughs> to go,
1: bud. <laughs> There's more kid than just this kid. Yeah, but there is something to it, right? Like there is something about adolescence that's, different.
0: Yeah. Yes, yes, very. I
1: I think McKenna, there's a possibility that you were never good at talking about your feelings. <laughs> it's just that you just didn't have as many before. <laughs> it's just that now for the first time in your life you want to be good at it, which I I would say is excellent progress. Yeah. You you're aware like like I remember being a, a young kid and having deep emotional experiences, but they were so disconnected from language that it didn't even really occur to me that I could share them. And then when I did try to share them, both like my literal vocabulary, but also my vocabulary in the sense of like being able to even understand what I was feeling Mm -hmm. were pretty limited. And so I really struggled to express myself emotionally when I was a young kid. And then when I was a teenager, I suddenly, A, like had really, really intense, overwhelming feelings all the time. And B, I had an expanded vocabulary, but I also had like, the feelings were so intense. It was almost like I couldn't exaggerate them. You know, like if I said, if I said something like, I've never been this happy, I meant it. (laughs) Like it was (laughs) true. Same thing with like, I've never been this scared. Mm -hmm. That was also true.
0: Yeah. And I think that you hit on an important thing there, which is that it is hard to understand our feelings it's hard to it's hard to understand where they're coming from it's hard to understand what they mean it's hard to have any feeling of control over them and so when you can't understand something you can't communicate about it and so i think of like that's a really important part of the desire to communicate your feelings is also the systems that you are creating right now that i am still creating that i use to understand how i am feeling which is a complicated thing right. and changes a lot moment to moment but also can be you know very big and, and but like that I also don't always have a super great grasp on. People ask me all the time how I'm doing and I'm like I'm just not going to check right now thanks. I'd rather not look. Right. And yeah, I don't and, want
1: to consider it too closely <laughs> yeah. but I also think that there's something magical and wonderful about having a name for something that you didn't know how to name or finding language for an experience that you didn't know you could ever have language for because it helps you to hold it and grasp it and it helps you to to share it. So McKenna, when I think about like what worked for me when I was younger about expressing my feelings, I think about two things. One, writing or, you know, other forms of what's called Mm self-expression. Because a lot of times like you can write your way or talk your way through to the feeling. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing is that when you can't, sometimes you can have art or something else do a little bit of that work for you. Mm -hmm. So you can say, I don't really know what I'm feeling, but I think if you read this book it might help you understand where I'm coming from. Mm -hmm. Or if you listen to this song, it might help you to understand where I'm coming from. Now that doesn't always work. Like I had this image in my mind that whenever I played a song for someone when I was 16 years (laughs) old- They really get it. Exactly.
0: Yeah, actually, I think I lost a girlfriend over that very thing once. Uh, I was like, Oh wow, I I love this song. I think it says a lot about our relationship. And she was like, I think that you are wrong.
1: Yeah, well, there's no pressure quite like someone saying, "I really want you to listen to this song so that you can understand how I feel about you" and then watching you listen to it. <laughs> so actually now McKenna, now that I've talked my way through this, I'm I'm back to my original thought which is try to write it down mm-hmm. and don't tell them to listen to a song. <laughs> Yeah. Or tell them to listen to a song on their own time, maybe. Right. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. Yeah.
0: Well, and and also, I think that like you know, art art is always interpreted in different ways by different people. But um, but it is also a way to communicate something that is impossible or very difficult to communicate. So I think it, I think it can be a very good tool. It can also be a good tool for even understanding where where you are at, because otherwise it it, it may not be easy to understand a feeling that you're
1: having. Indeed. I mean, look, McKenna. I'm 43 years old, and talking right now, I realize that I have no idea what I'm feeling, except that it's a lot. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, it's mostly up in my sort of, like, upper teeth.
1: For me, it's right behind my solar plexus. Yeah. And it's a mix of the dawns are going home and the void <laughs> anyway here's another question
0: is from connor who asks dear hank and john could the dinosaurs have seen the meteor ultimately meteorite that killed them before it like you know killed them or would it have gone from the atmosphere to the ground so fast that they would have died before seeing any fireball if the latter is that how you'd want to go out corpses and
1: comets connor no connor N- no no I do not want to go out in a mass extinction event. That's one of my number one goals.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I want to, I want to have a sense of continuity of like the continuance of the human story.
1: I've always felt like there is nothing in this world as narcissistic as believing that the end of your world means the end of the world. Like I want. It
0: hadn't even occurred to me that someone could feel that way.
1: I want. To live in the first one, one millionth of 1% of human history. That is my goal, Connor. And I am trying to live in accordance with that value. Hank, did the dinosaurs see what was coming?
0: Many, many of them did. Uh, Though all the ones that did didn't didn't last the day, probably. Right. Uh, Light travels very fast. Um, So if you could see something, you will see it before it kills you. If it's bright enough. I guess would be the thing. If 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 it is visible. And if it's
1: coming from space. Like if it's coming right. There's a number of things that can kill you that you don't see coming. <laughs>
0: That's true.
1: <laughs> yeah. In fact, um, mo- most, <laughs> most of, of them.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. The, but yeah, it would have been a big, bright fireball in the sky. They would have seen it explode, but it probably exploded before it hit the ground. So we sort of have this image of like a giant rock like running into the earth, but It's probably uh, a series of explosions where it it sort of like rammed into the atmosphere so hard that it exploded before it hit the actual ground. Mm -hmm. And uh, they would have been able to see that and then they would have died in a number of ways soon after if if it was visible to them. Yeah. Shockwave, there probably would have been like a a 10.1 magnitude earthquake. So that's like bigger than anything that we've experienced in human timescales.
1: Yeah. Keep going. This is doing uh, wonders for my anxiety. Give me more.
0: So like the wind would have been so big that it would have picked up anything, anything. Mm. I almost said anything that wasn't nailed down, but nothing was nailed down back then. So anything, and then it would have taken that and put it like on the front of this shockwave and that that stuff would have hit the dinosaurs physically. Mm. So we often talk about like these big shockwaves as if they're a wind. And yes, even the pressure of the shockwave can kill you easily. It's it's also the stuff that is carried along in the shockwave. So even if it is the shockwave isn't isn't enough to on its own kill you, the stuff that's carried in it would be
1: With with each level I just feel worse and worse. Hank, what what else?
0: Yeah, well, I mean earlier than that, um there's a very high likelihood that before the wind, before the earthquake you'd get uh, thermal radiation, so just the heat Mm. Like infrared radiation would make it so hot that, that everything would catch on fire. Mm-hmm. So that would that would be like the first thing. Yeah. Would be the heat. And that's like seconds. Cool. So like you see it, and then like seconds later, <laughs> it's great. you'd get the IR. Yeah. And then minutes later would be like the ejecta falling down from the sky. Mm-hmm. Like an hour later would be the shock wave, mm, which is great. Spe- traveling at the speed of sound rather than the speed of light. Right. Yeah. And and then but but there are also interestingly. If you're further away and you can't actually see the impact, you would be able to see an effect of this before the sort of like planet wide catastrophe of the dust that would make it cold for a very long time that that actually caused the extinction. Not it wasn't like the the impact that caused the extinction. It was the
1: right. It was the two years of it was darkness. the years
0: of of darkness. Yeah, right. What you would see before the years of darkness would be meteors and meteorites. Oh, but not the one because what happened was a huge amount of like stuff got thrown up into the sky and much of that stuff never fell back down. That's how big the impact was. It like went off into space, but much of it did fall back down and so you would see that as meteors and meteorites potentially very, very far away. Wow. And so that would be weird. If you were a dinosaur, you'd be like, wow, that's quite a meteor shower, like to the extent that it's like way more than a meteor shower and much bigger rocks than in a typical meteor shower. So it'd be brighter boloids, as they call them.
1: Mostly this all makes me think that like humans in the Middle Ages who were very scared of comets were onto something. (laughs) Like. It was it was something of a well-founded concern. Yeah.
0: yeah. It was, well, anything new in the sky is, is concerning, uh, but it turns out that it wasn't just like, like oftentimes it's like, oh, a new thing. I'm concerned about it. But then it's like, oh, a new thing. I'm concerned about it. And it just by chance turns out to be something of concern. And that is the case with impactors potential impactors.
1: Great. Well, that really that really helped me, Hank. Thank you for that exhaustive explanation I mean, of the murderous events that occurred before the two years of darkness that resulted in many more murderous events.
0: I think 50 years from now yeah. we will be able to detect and deflect any potential asteroid impact great any potential like sort of like so, earth damaging asteroid impact so
1: like like you know, we just need to we, we just need to dodge 50 years of bullets
0: yeah on a on like tens of millions of year timescale which is the timescale that impacts happen then
1: i think that that's a pretty like that we got a pretty good chance this next question comes from taylor who writes dear john and hank i'm a year 11 history student taylor you're not allowed to brag about being from the United Kingdom and or Australia by saying things like, I'm a year 11 history student, okay? So I'm going to rewrite your question for you, Taylor. I hope you know this is impersonal. Dear John and Hank, I'm in 11th grade and I've been watching many of John's old crash course <laughs> videos. They're very helpful, by the way. Thanks so much. Anyway, in the videos, you have a segment where John reads a mystery document and has to guess who wrote it. And if he guesses correctly, he's fine. But if he guesses incorrectly, he gets shocked with an electric pen. My question is, were you really shocked with an electric pen? And if so, what did it feel like? Taylor. This, I've seen this question Yeah, like yeah. 50 times in the last week. We get this a lot.
0: But like recently, it's like, there must be yeah. some meme out there that I don't know about. Something went viral somewhere. And because I've been asked about it.
1: Every time I speak to a group of high school history students on Zoom or whatever, uh-huh. it's, it's the first question. Huh. The answer is yes. Y- you could get these little shock pens anywhere when we were kids. They were a very popular gag gift. Yeah. And we did have a shock pen. There were a couple episodes where like we couldn't find it or we left it somewhere and we didn't have it on set. And in those occasions, you can sort of tell that I'm faking. Mm, Interesting. But almost all the time we use the shock pen. I did really shock myself when... I got an answer wrong. I found, as has been proven in many psychological studies, that it did not make me better at guessing <laughs> the, the, the author of the mystery document. Yeah, no. if anything, it made me worse uh-huh. because it made me very nervous. Yep. <laughs> but we did, uh, yeah, we did have a shock pen. It did not hurt much. I have no. to say, it's it's very. It was like an exaggerated version of. And you've never had this experience, Taylor, because I think you live in Australia, but it was an exaggerated version of when it's cold outside and you build up static electricity and then you touch another, I don't know, a wall or something and you have that like electric shock. It was sort of like the biggest one of those you've ever felt, but it was smaller than any proper right. experience of being shocked.
0: Yeah. I did. I remember we on tour had a shocking device. Was it that pen yes. or was it a different thing?
1: I think it was a different thing. Yeah. I can't remember. And we though.
0: did. We had like a game where we like if we lost the thing, then
1: we'd yeah. the other person would get shocked. And it was fun. But yeah, we we've it was OK. We've had so many dumb bits on tour now that I think about it. <laughs> <laughs> we
0: also uh on Project for Awesome. Like last year, I got a dog shock collar or two years ago. Yeah. And actually got myself shocked for, which is the, this was the worst thing. It was like trivia about the companies that I run and the people who work for them, which is like the thing that would stress me out the most to get wrong, right? Yeah. When it's like, you don't know that Rachel has a dog? And I'm like, no, I apparently don't (laughs) care about my employees at all.
1: Well, have you ever seen that SNL sketch where it's like, For $5, name uh, Justin Bieber's girlfriend in 2007. And they're like, Selena Gomez. And then they're like, okay, now for (laughs) $500,000, this is your best friend, Jeff. And this is his girlfriend of seven years. (laughs) What's her name? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, this is a bad this is a bad sign. Megan writes, Dear John and Hank, I'm finally living in my own apartment and it's nice overall, but it's weird making my dinner and eating it alone. And I'm kind of super tired of like just scrolling as I eat. But it feels empty and eerie to just eat all by myself without any noise or anything. How can I spice things up here? Pumpkins and penguins, Megan. Music. Oh, so You gotta get really into music. You think so? No, I I think that of the two of us, I'm the only one who's lived alone. <laughs> Huh. Is that
0: correct? Uh, I mean, basically. Yeah. I've lived I've lived in an apartment by myself, but I have always like had neighbors that were on the level of like
1: Seinfeld. Okay. Where you could just sort of walk into their places. <laughs> when did you live in an apartment complex that had neighbors on the level of Seinfeld? Uh, when I first moved to Missoula. Okay. But, okay. All right. A little bit. But you were in, yeah. You weren't like, I have lived by myself yeah. for a long time. Yeah. For years and years. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, there are great things about living with yourself and there are challenging things. And the single most challenging thing for me about living by myself was eating dinner. What I found was that if I ate dinner, Hank, I don't know if you know this about me, but among the many weird writing jobs I had early on in my professional life, I was a reviewer of audiobooks. books, yep. which per hour was the worst money I've ever made, right? Because I would like Listen to an audiobook for 20 hours, and then I would spend like 10 hours writing a 200-word review for which I was paid $25. Mm -hmm. But the great thing about it was that I discovered that if I listen to an audiobook while I'm eating my dinner, then I can transition immediately into doing the dish or dishes, Mm -hmm. depending on the quality of the meal I had prepared for myself. And I could not stop listening to the audiobook, so it started to feel like it was one thing. Like, the making of the meal, the eating of the meal, and the cleaning of up after the meal were one thing, and that allowed me to do all three of those things in, like, a focused and determined way. So that's what I recommend. Sort of like lumping the tasks? More, more like the three things start to feel like they are all part of the same right, it's- thing, which is not really a task even. Right. It's- like living.
0: It's like ritualized a little.
1: Right. I was able to ritualize it, which helped me. Right. And then the other thing is that when I was living alone, I tried to take advantage of the things that were good about living alone, like the advantages to it, like being able to read whenever I wanted to and being able to like watch whatever TV I wanted to whenever I wanted to. hmm.
0: Well, here's Johnny. Here's uh, the opposite question from Cassie who asks, dear Hank and John, I've been living by myself for the last seven years and I'm about to move into a place. Megan, we should just put you in contact with Cassie because Cassie knows how to do this better than than either of us. Seven, seven years. Yeah, she's an expert. I will now be sharing a bathroom and a kitchen with two other people who I barely know. How does anyone go about consolidating things with new roommates? I have all of my own silverware, cookware plates, cleaning supplies, etc. Also, I have my own routines. I've only ever had two roommates previously, and they were both people that I had known for a pretty long time before we moved in together. I'm not sure how to do this whole thing. Thanks, Cassie. Oof. First of all, cleaning supplies, just lump them together. You're going to get through them. Yeah. You're going to use it all. Yeah. Don't Don't throw any of that away.
1: Silverware... It's a little, it's a little bit of an in-between space for me. Yeah. Well, it depends
0: on like, is it a full set? Yeah. And like, I didn't have one of those until I was married. So it was just sort of like cobbled together silverware. And in that case, I feel completely comfortable, you know, just having the the amount that fit in the drawer.
1: (laughs) I never really, from the age of about 21 until the age of about 29, I did not. Really know where any fork I owned had come from, right? You know, like yeah. I didn't know the origin story of any of my forks. Well, I definitely went to the Goodwill and I bought four of each thing. That's how I forked up. And maybe that, maybe that's the origin story, and I've just forgotten yeah. it. But like, <laughs> I would look in. I remember looking in the silverware drawer and just being like, "This is amazing." I mean, where did <laughs> you guys come from? So many different look kinds of you forks guys. in They're- here. Where did y'all all all come from? Uh, How did this happen? Did I steal you from the Golden Corral? Because I wouldn't put it past me. This is part of living life. My personal feeling about this when I've had roommates in the past is that my plates were pretty much mine, mostly because I don't think my roommates trusted (laughs) me to have totally clean plates. (laughs) So (laughs) it it was sort of, uh, it sort of discouraged them from using my plates in the first place. But... (laughs) That's that. That's how it's always worked for me. Like, my plates were mine, and then the silverware was pretty much shared, but only because it came from very nebulous sources.
0: Right. I mean, the things that you're going to have to worry about more than this, furniture, if you're moving any furniture, um, is a big deal because it takes up a huge amount of space and, like, you only need one couch, probably. Right, right. And, and appliances as well, because, like, counter space— is important and you don't want to fill up every inch of counter space with like this person's blender and this person's soda stream and this person's Cuisinart and this guy like too many things. So you have to like Yeah,
1: you don't want four toasters in one apartment.
0: Yeah, and and you also want to compromise on like what appliances are necessary for your health and happiness. And that you may be and, and also like refrigerator space is extremely important and must be maintained
1: at all costs. That is actually the bigger issue in my <laughs> experience is yeah. like Also, when there's a diversity of opinions about whether or not to, for instance, refrigerate peanut butter. No. If it's shared peanut butter. Yeah. And as you know, Hank, refrigerated peanut butter is Mm. catastrophic on every level. It's useless. What do you do with it? You can't spread it, It, which is the thing that (laughs) peanut butter exists to do. Yeah. And the, the big upside of refrigerating peanut butter is... Nothing, because <laughs> it doesn't need to be refrigerated.
0: Yeah, somehow peanut butter can't go bad, and I don't know what that that's about. But like, that's that's the situation. Yes,
1: I've never had it happen. Yeah, there's a lot of things you don't refrigerate, like you don't refrigerate your jeans, and I, I don't know the exact <laughs> well, reasons why. I just know jeans. that you don't. Yeah, it's
0: true. But also, the the process of of roomating is is a process of of compromise, and it is also one of the chief. Uh, question asking areas of the Dear Hank and John inbox. So do not be surprised that conflict can and does arise.
1: But hopefully- I think the actual key is being able- to have that conflict rather than having it like simmer and turn toxic and and aggressive and everything else. And you're you're sending
0: emails to strangers about it and not
1: like, (laughs) yeah, like, Hey, please read my question on the podcast. My question is, why does my roommate Juniper continue (laughs) to refrigerate the peanut butter? I hate her. (laughs) And I'm like, I don't think that's really a question for the podcast. I think that's a, that's a question for Juniper. Yeah. Yeah. So, Cassie, it is definitely a weird experience to live closely with people you don't know well. I've had this experience before, but it can also be really wonderful as long as you keep those lines of communication open. It's like being in a band together. It's like being in a family together. Like, you've got to be able to talk. And if you don't, the resentment will just build up and build up.
0: Yep, that's the main thing. John, this next question comes from Sarah, who asks, Dear Hank and John, what's up with kazoos? Thanks, Sarah.
1: It's a great question. Do you know that the kazoo is the oldest musical instrument? Whoa. Like in terms of documentation in the history of the world? Really? I
0: would have definitely thought it was like a flute.
1: No, the kazoo came first. Wow. Why do we call it a kazoo? We call it a kazoo because in ancient Mesopotamia, that was the name for it. Oh. Isn't that wild? I definitely assumed. That is the Sanskrit word for a kazoo. I definitely
0: assumed that kazoo was like a a brand name from the 1950s. Kazoos- Because it are, sounds like a brand name from the 1950s.
1: Kazoos are so old that one of the earliest examples of written language refers to a kazoo. Whoa. How long can I keep doing this before Hank realizes oh, that I am man. full of crap?
0: Oh man. <laughs> oh man, it seemed it seemed possible to me.
1: No, cuz these are like 100 cuz these are like 120 years old. <laughs> and then and
0: then I was agreeing cuz I was cuz I was confused and I was reading the etymology dictionary and I was like trying to figure out where it, <laughs> so I was just like agreeing cuz I wasn't paying yeah. attention.
1: Oh, and they're called kazoo's because they sound like kazoo. Mm,
0: okay it's a uh, an alteration of earlier
1: bazoo which was what we called a trumpet because it sounded like bazoo (laughs) and they're like well this is kind of a knockoff terrible trumpet let's call it the kazoo yeah but at least it wasn't from the 50s because if i had gotten it that right i would have been angry (laughs) no it it, they're from like the late 19th century right yeah correct (sighs) Uh, well, I bet the alt- earliest musical instrument is some kind of flute, though. <laughs> <laughs> now I want to look it up. The earliest musical instrument were flutes, it was Boom. flutes made from bird bone and mammoth ivory. <laughs> From a cave in southern Germany, that's the earliest musical instrument I've got ever a found. Flute, though. All right, great. Well, I, at uh, least I, at least I won that one. Well, not really. I made you believe that written <laughs> language started with a discussion but, of kazoos. I was like, I think I win. I think you win. I think I definitely win that. Well, one. That's the.
0: We've been doing this podcast for like eight years, and that's the first time you've ever done that.
1: Well, you got to be, Hank, you've got to use it very judiciously, (laughs) right? Like, if I did it every week, you'd be looking for it every week, and I wouldn't be able to trick you on that scale. It's been a while since I've tried to pull off yeah. one of that scale, and I feel really, really good. Right
0: I, now. Yeah, I love. I, I, it's one of my favorite things, and I, I can't do it publicly. Yeah. because people, because like, I can't uh, affect my credibility as a science communicator. Right, you're a science communicator. You can't like share fake science. Oh, but back in college, I, I once convinced my roommate that we got herpes from oranges, but only because
1: oranges come from whales. <laughs> <laughs> You know who's really good at that game is my best friend, Chris Waters. Oh, yeah, and he is. I am so gullible. Uh-huh. He's just so good at it. He once convinced me that we were walking up a hill in southern Indiana, like in the woods in December. And Chris convinced me that Larry Bird, the famous <laughs> basketball <laughs> yeah. player. huh had just walked past us.
0: <laughs> I like that.
1: So we, we passed like a group of three people. Uh-huh. And like, like two minutes later, Chris is like, that... That was Larry Bird, and I'm like, what? No, it was like a, it was like a, 35 year old person and and their two children, and he's like, no, man, that was Larry, and I was like, they were, it, they weren't even tall, they weren't tall, they weren't old, <laughs> and, but but like 20 minutes later, I was like, I can't believe we saw Larry Bird here <laughs> down here in Brown County. What's he doing here? Yeah, and I. Was he with his grandkids? And then finally, Chris is like, I, I mean, I really can convince you of anything. <laughs> oh,
0: my God. That's amazing. Which reminds me, John, that this podcast is brought to you by Larry Bird. <laughs> he called in. He sent us a message and he was like, I want to give you 376 Larry Birds in order to get sponsored in your podcast. And we're like, wow, Larry, that's an old goof. You must be listening to old episodes of the
1: podcast. <laughs> Way to dig into the archives there. <laughs> Mr. Bird, thanks for not just being like a new listener to the Mm -hmm. podcast, but for being a a deep fan. Yeah. We really appreciate that. Uh, We're also really grateful to our noted deep fan, Thermal Radiation. Thermal Radiation, thank you for sponsoring today's podcast. Thermal Radiation, it's like the second thing that that kills you about the media, right? That's the first thing, but that's okay. okay. (laughs) This podcast is also brought to you by
0: John's Shock Pen. It's real! It's a real shock pen. John was actually
1: experiencing real pain while shooting Crash Course World History. And today's podcast is also brought to you by the happiest I had ever been when I was in high school. It was the happiest I had ever been. But then like 6 hours later was the s- most scared and afraid I've ever been. And that's Sounds about right. being a being a teenager. And that that's on love. Mm, I mean for me it was more on friendship. Oh.
0: John, this next question comes from Hallie, who asks, Dear Hank and John, I always hear about how we get vitamin D from the sun. How does that work? Are beams of light just full of vitamins that we soak in through our skin? Does sun activate something in our bodies that generates vitamin D? Not Bailey, not Barry, but Hallie. Uh, this is so cool, John. I love this. We need vitamin D to live. Uh, it is an essential vitamin that we cannot make ourselves except through photoaction." So there's a chemical, it's a precursor to cholesterol. So basically like our body is making chemicals all the time so that we can like have our body be made up of stuff. And there are enzymes that do all this work. And most of those things we can make ourselves, but some of them we can't. But one of the things we can make ourselves is cholesterol. And on the way to cholesterol, like there are intermediate compounds. And one of them is called 7-dehydrocholesterol. And that chemical exists in our bodies, uh, but it usually exists in our bodies on the way to becoming cholesterol, which we think we talk about in terms of it being bad, but it is also extremely necessary. It's just bad when it is out of balance. What happens is it turns out that if that chemical gets exposed to UVB energy, it turns into vitamin D. And so our bodies, instead of figuring out how to make vitamin D, they didn't need to do that. They just like started to store a fair amount of that chemical, 7-D hydrocholesterol, in our skin. And that was how we figured out how to make vitamin D so that we wouldn't have to worry about actually manufacturing it because it was easier to just put it in our skin.
1: Wow. Or simpler, I should say. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So we're like, kind of like trees.
0: We are a little bit photosynthetic in that that step on one chemical pathway is done by uh, the energy from the sun, not from us. That's
1: amazing. Yeah. Well- Hank, it's time for the all-important news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon. I'll go first, because tomorrow, as we're recording this, or six days ago as you're listening to it, a huge day. In Wimbledon's history, we will briefly mention the fact that uh, over the weekend, AFC Wimbledon played the franchise currently playing its trade. Milton Uh Keynes got a 1-1 draw. (laughs) Nothing in this world more uncertain than a 1-0 Wimbledon lead. I mean, (laughs) if we score before the 94th minute, it's too soon. So uh, scored a great goal and then gave up a goal three minutes later. Game ended 1-1. Whatever, good point. Away from home, the important. You also won
0: a game uh, in between the last episode we recorded, so you are still doing well.
1: We did. I think we're we're in eleventh place right now. Which, I mean, I'll take that all day long. Yeah. Two big stories that affect Wimbledon right now. One is the lockdown in the UK. Uh, It appears that the top four tiers of English football will continue playing. So that's that Mm -hmm. for now. And then secondly, after over 10,000 days away from Wimbledon, away from Plow Lane, their stadium for over 100 years, Wimbledon are back home at last. They will play their first game at the new Plow Lane Stadium, funded, built, and owned by the fans of the club tomorrow. Unfortunately, It will be in front of no fans. Hmm. And so it will not really be plow lane, I think, to a lot of people until we can all be together there. But it is a huge moment and an incredible testament to my mind of what can happen when a community sticks together and holds on to hope because everyone Everyone said that this was going to be impossible, that Plow Lane was gone and never coming back. The English FA itself said that football in that community, a football team in that community, was not in the wider interests of the game, Hmm. and Wimbledon fans have proven everyone wrong without a billionaire benefactor, with nothing but togetherness and hard work for more than 30 years to get to this moment. So huge congratulations to everybody who worked so hard on this. Thank you for showing the world the way back to Plow Lane. And offering a different vision for what sports and what communities can be and can accomplish together.
0: Well, this week in Mars news, John, a milestone in Mars news as well, as the Perseverance rover has passed the halfway mark to Mars. Oh wow! Yeah, so the spacecraft finished traveling 146.3 million miles on October 27th. So it's 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 well past that now, which is the exact distances has left to travel before reaching Mars in February. Now it isn't a direct midway point between us and Mars because the spacecraft is taking like a curved route. So you can't like draw a straight line. It's like sort of like, mm-hmm. basically Perseverance is continuing to orbit the sun as it moves toward Mars. So it, it you know, it moves because it was moving very fast when it left Earth because of how Earth is moving very fast relative to the sun. While the rover is traveling, the team has been checking in on it to make sure everything's working. They've been testing instruments and they've been uploading files. Everything seems to be working just fine. Another fun fact, right now, it takes about two minutes and 22 seconds for transmissions to go from mission control to the spacecraft because Perseverance is two minutes and 22 light seconds away from us. Wow. Which is wild. When it lands on Mars, it'll be about 11.5 light minutes away. Actually, that amount will change as Mars gets further away from Earth, right? That's a big annoyance when you're trying to control a spacecraft on Mars, but it's one of the things that we're getting better and better at uh, planning the paths uh, and also letting the rovers make some decisions for themselves as they go across the surface of the red planet.
1: That's so cool. And it's kind of nice, Hank, that this week both the news from Mars and the news from Wimbledon are about Perseverance. Yes, they are. We find a way through. That's the greatest thing about us. John and I am glad we're making a podcast with you. Thank you for taking the time to chat. Yeah. And I like making podcasts. Me too. Let's do it again next week. Oh, okay. And then the week after that, until we die. <laughs>
0: John, we're off to record our Patreon-only podcast this week in stuff. Also, if you don't know this, before this podcast, we did our live stream with our Patreon patrons, which is really nice to do. So you can go to Patreon.com slash John to find out more about that. This podcast is edited by Joseph Tunamedish. It's produced by Rosiana Hals Rojas and Sheridan Gibson. Our communications coordinator is Julia Bloom. The editorial assistant is Deboki Chakravardi. The music you're hearing now, and at the beginning of the podcast, is by the great Gunnarola. And as they say in our hometown, don't, don't forget to be awesome. awesome.